0: Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. The rabbis teach that when we have our final interview with the Holy One, that we will be asked four questions. The first will be, did you conduct your business affairs with integrity? The second is, did you raise a family? The third will be, did you make time to grow in Torah and wisdom and understanding? And the fourth is, did you work for the repair of our broken world? So often in life we find ourselves on a conveyor belt, carrying us forward from preschool through grade school, where the expectations for academic success and accomplishment take hold along with pressure to excel in sports, music, the arts, or one of the acceptable avocations, so that we can attend college, choose one of the acceptable professions, find a partner, raise children, climb the ladder of professional success. And then, along the way, with the pressures of building life as it is expected for us to build, we sometimes lose focus on the real questions of life the kinds of questions the rabbis imagine the Holy One will ask, the essential questions, questions of morality, meaning, and purpose, how we can find not simply physical enrichment, but spiritual enrichment and well-being also. Oftentimes it is on the back nine of life that those questions come into clearer focus. As our nests empty and our children move into their own adulthood, as our careers begin to wind down, As the natural aches and pains and ailments of aging bodies begin to take hold, and as we move into a later phase of life, the questions of what is it all about begin to draw on our attention. How can we be more thoughtful and careful in sanctifying our life experience along the way? Whether we are in our middle years or moving into a later stage in life, these questions of how we can be more deliberate in choosing how we use the very precious gift of time become ever more important. To help us answer that essential question, what is sacred aging, we are blessed today to have with us Rabbi Richard Address, who is the founder and director of JewishSacredAging.com. In 1997, Rabbi Address founded the Union for Reform Judaism's Department of Jewish Family Conserved, and served for decades as a specialist and consultant for the North American Reform Movement in areas of family-related programming. And a major part of his work has been in the development and implementation of the project of Sacred Aging, creating awareness and resources for congregations and individuals on the implication of the emerging longevity revolution with growing emphasis on the aging of the baby boomers. This aging revolution, as he coins it, has begun to impact all aspects of Jewish communal and congregational life, and certainly our own individual lives as we move through our own life process. For four years, he has hosted his own weekly radio show called Boomer Generation Radio, and beginning in the winter of 2018, began his podcast called Seekers of Meaning, which is dedicated to discussing issues related to aging, spirituality, and impact on families and congregations. So, Rich, you've been doing this work for so many, many years in so many different capacities. So what is the fascination with the spiritual dynamics of life in later years and family dynamics and certainly with aging, which has been the focus of your work, what is driving you with these questions? What is fueling you about exploring this piece of spirituality?
1: Uh, Actually, a couple of ways. One, you're right. I started working in this area actually when I was a pulpit rabbi, when I was a young rabbi out in California. It grew um, when I worked as a regional director and um, head of the Jewish Family Concerns Department for the Union for Reform Judaism. When we started to deal with uh, and study all the demographic Studies of major Jewish cities and populations around North America for the for the union, to try to work with congregations, and it was then that we began to see the shift, the demographic shift in our own Jewish community. When the URJ got rid of all the regions and all the program departments, I just took this private, so to speak, because we saw the um, the changes on the. That's the professional answer. The personal answer is I'm living it. The Shifts in movement from the acquisition of material goods to the acquisition of spiritual meaning. Uh, really, I began to notice, and as I was doing workshops in congregations, I noticed it within me. Something was changing. This is a, and when I started really studying uh, the baby boomer issues and the impact of con- on congregational life. It really became something of a passion and it drove, it drove the website, it drives the Seekers of Meaning podcast and a lot of all my teaching. Uh, so, because look, the, the Pew study of 2013 and which was updated on 2020, about 50% of the American Jewish community are now over the age of 50. Very few congregations are dealing with it that that our generation has helped change dramatically the entire fabric of American Jewish community and there's amazing issues that are developing personally economic issues but personal issues of meaning loss meaning family family dynamics and Judaism has a lot to say about all of this stuff so
0: i appreciate that journey and i know your passion on on these issues and these questions And so you've created this wonderful organization around this idea called sacred aging. Correct. The aging part is an aspect of human experience over which we don't really have that much control. God willing, we're going to keep aging every single day. But the sacred part is a lot more about our own perspective and deliberate choices that we make as we age. Correct. So what makes something sacred? What makes the experience of life no matter where we are on that journey, but certainly in later years, what makes that sacred?
1: Everything we do in Jewish Sacred Aging, my program, ba- is based on text. So the easy way to, the easy way, that's a silly statement, but the a way I'm comfortable answering that question is to really take a look at some of the texts that guide us, that we teach. So for example, we've recently come out of the High Holidays, Yom Kippur, Parasha Nitzavim, there's this magnificent passage in Deuteronomy 30, 19 of Uvachar choose life. But the B part of the verse, which we rarely teach, is the key. Why do you make choices that sanctify life? It's for legacy. It's so that the people who come after you will be blessed. The spiritual aspect of our own growing old is a confrontation with our own mortality, uh, which I, I will submit to you and your audience that all of us, if we're granted the gift of life, At some point, we understand that we are mortal. It's Genesis 3. And so we're confronted with choices. The choices that we make can dignify and sanctify the life that we live. They also help build legacy. Because as much as we may hope to go into a future with our children and grandchildren, uh, if we're so blessed to have them, we can't. We can't control that. We also can't control the one thing that's common to all of us, and that's time. We cannot control time. So the question becomes, and this is the liturgy is filled with this, especially in the high holidays, and almost every Torah portion, especially in Genesis. What do we do with this time? What do we do with it? I was teaching a a a shiur on Yom Kippur afternoon to my old congregation, and we talked about this text from Victor Frankel about you know. The, the, the wrong question to, life, to ask is, what is the meaning of my life? The question really is, how can I live my life so that it has meaning? And that to me is a spiritual quest. That to me is the spirituality of our own aging.
0: So figuring out like how life has meaning.
1: Correct. How I can live my life to have meaning.
0: And I think that that's sort of one of those eternal questions. You know, I think about how the book of Ecclesiastes, one way of looking at life is that it has no meaning. Correct. It's all a wisp of wind. Mm -hmm. right? I remember uh, years ago, I was in Virginia with my daughter and we were in a little town called Luray, which is near Shenandoah National Park. And it has the famous Larae Caverns. It's the largest stalactite stalagmite cave in the East. And it's this magnificent, huge, beautiful place. And you have these massive columns of limestone that are 50 feet high and they're humongous. And the guide is walking us through there and she says, you know, each of these columns grows a cubic inch every 70 years. And I'm looking at my life and it's like that much.
1: The blink of an eye.
0: And so, you know, if you look at sort of what the Webb telescope is discovering about the age of the universe and the idea that there are billions of galaxies and trillions of planets and all of which has existed for billions of years. And we live like maybe if we're lucky, a hundred of them. Mm-hmm. How is it that you can sort of hold that in one hand and the idea that life also has sacred meaning and purpose in the other hand? How do you bring those two things together?
1: Two quick answers. Well, one answer, two quick things. One, back to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter one, which is in the top 10 chapters in the, in the entire Tanakh, the imagery of you know, the rivers flowing into the sea we are, we are part of something greater. I think that's one of the gifts of Judaism. We are part of something greater than ourselves. It is not a spirituality of narcissism. It is a spirituality of our own existence. And then the Potok book, The Chosen, from the 60s, probably before you were born, the son asked the father, you know, exactly what you asked. What is this all about? And the, and the father says, you know, talks to his son, Reuven. We're here for what amounts to, as you alluded to, the blink of an eye in the grand scheme of that. We're here for the blink of an eye. And it's the it's the eye that blink that matters. It's what you do. It's what you do. And that's that's how I approach this. It's it, our challenge and it's a lifelong challenge. And our liturgy and our tradition is filled with this challenge is, you're here. This is a gift. This is the greatest gift we're ever going to be given. Every morning. Thank you. I'm alive. I'm alive. What are you going to do with it? There's this wonderful cartoon, a Peanuts cartoon that I teach when we do the tech sessions about Snoopy and Charlie Brown and Charlie Brown sitting on the end of the dock and says, you know, Snoopy, one day we're all going to die. To which Snoopy says in his balloon, yes, that's true. But until that day when we don't, we're alive. And and that's exactly what we're talking about. Every rabbi, every colleague, every every cantor, rabbi, clergy person, regardless of, knows people who grab hold of like they, they understand that especially as they age, this is a gift. This is a gift. And we also know people who say, I'm, you know, they they exist, but they don't live.
0: There's there's the famous parable of the guy who's walking on the seashore and he's throwing starfish back into the ocean. And they say, you know, what difference is that going to make? You can't throw all these back. You can't make a difference. And he says, I can make a difference for this one. And I think in some ways, right, whether or not we inhabit a glimmer or, a, as you say, the blink of an eye in the scheme of the universe, that doesn't mean that that is inconsequential. It is our experience. It is our generation. Our experience of life is of ultimate consequence. Correct. And so the idea of trying to enrich that with as much holiness and meaning to me is a noble question. It's the essential question. And so I would ask you, why is that so difficult for people? If this is the most important thing we can be thinking about, how do we fill our lives with meaning and purpose? How do we create a legacy which we'll talk a little bit more about? Why is that so difficult for so many people? What are the obstacles that interfere with having a sacred orientation or living life in a sacred way?
1: First of all, I think, well, the headline, I think there's some fear involved, Dan. I think there's some fear involved. Um, I think there's realities of economics. Some people just need to make a living and they don't have time to consider the great existential questions of life. I think that's one of the challenges we're having right now. There's a mythology that you know, the baby boom generation, which has a, which, a huge amount of wealth, but it's distributed inequality. There's a book just published called The Last Days of the Baby Boom Generation and the Future of Power in America. It really he points out the fact that there's a significant amount of income inequality in the United States of America. But if you're struggling to make a living, if you're 78 years of age and you're dealing with chronic illness, and maybe living paycheck to paycheck, the idea of sitting there having a cup of coffee and contemplating the great existential questions of existence and meaning may not be available to you in the same way it is to us or many of our our congregants. That's a fact. It doesn't mean that people like that don't do that, but there are external circumstances that in many cases, look, you have people in your congregation right now who are totally involved with caregiving, it has taken over their lives. It's why that's the most requested workshop we do in Jewish sacred aging. They're postponing things. At the same time, at the same time, Dan, you have a huge explosion amongst the baby boom generation of what I call the give back syndrome. Many have arrived at a position in their lives in their sixties, seventies, and eighties where they are somewhat economically secure, and they now say oh, it's time to give back to society. So you have the Dyke World, you have the Encore situation, you have the Village Movement. So this is all dynamic. It's all very, very, very dynamic. The challenge of seeking the meaning in all of this is, and it's very personal. Some people, as a result of their own family of origin issues, the way they were raised, their circumstances, their family, they just are not in a position to to even think this way. That's why these conversations, especially within synagogues, because the synagogue is a perfect place to have these conversations, uh, are absolutely essential. Synagogues have to ask these essential questions of Genesis 2.18, the whole loneliness epidemic, and Genesis 3, which is the greatest, in my opinion, the best chapter in the Torah. Because Genesis chapter 3 raises the issue of you're going to die. And the issue of the three basic why questions of existence, which are at the heart of all of this conversation. Why was I born? Why must I die? Why am I here? Those are the only three questions that matter. And I think we ask those, each of us ask those questions, especially as we get older. Some people grab a hold of it and and try to deal with it. And some people say, it's too much for me. I can't deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. But that's why it's exciting.
0: And I think that sometimes as you've described the, the you know, the busyness of life and the, the the path that we kind of are told we're supposed to follow doesn't afford us much time or even direction to ask those questions of meaning. You know, the thing that I talk about with, with people in our congregation is that, you know, the conveyor belt begins somewhere north, you know, before we're two. And we are placed on this conveyor belt and we're told to try to learn as much as we can and to develop our kinesthetic skills and our intellectual skills to the best of our ability so that we can learn the things we're supposed to learn that will help us to acquire some of the skills that uh, everyone says we're supposed to acquire, whether it's in sports or academics or music, so that we can win admission to the most prestigious university that will take us so that we will choose one of the acceptable professions so that we will find an appropriate partner and move to an appropriate suburb to buy an appropriate house and build an appropriate career and press reset for our children. And that conveyor belt kind of drops us off somewhere in the middle part of our lives. And a lot of times we never ask. Why am I on that conveyor belt? Why am I doing this? It's just what everyone told me I was supposed to do. And even if things happen over time where we fall off that conveyor belt, there's an illness or a disruption or a, 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 a broken marriage or any of the, the, the vicissitudes that can impact a life, the expectation is you're going to get back on that conveyor belt. That's what you're supposed to do. And that often leads people in that second part of their life saying, what was that all about? Why am I, you know, now what? What was that for? And so, how does your work help us to begin to answer those questions of meaning? How do I even begin to start thinking about that if I've been one of those loyal people who rode the conveyor belt to its natural end?
1: I think people have to be given permission to get off the belt. You know, one of the great things is, is. and we're finding this in all the new studies the gift of longevity means that people, after they so called retire, which is a horrible word, may have 25, 30 years of life ahead of them, given medical technology. What are you going to do with it? Uh, that's why so many people who retire and then jump into a new career, and when they'll sit in your office and you'll say, and they'll say, you know, I always wanted to do this, but I was programmed to do A, B, just like we joke about. But now the kids are gone, or I don't want to do that anymore. I want to create this, or I want to go into business for myself, or we want to take up these musical instruments. Second thing is, is to try to tell people uh, to have them talk about what I call the tensions of of our own aging. We all live with tensions, and to me, one of the great tensions that we have to negotiate, and this is Genesis twelve, is this tension of holding on and letting go. You've seen this in your office. I, I'm sure somebody's going to come to you and they're, they're, they're existentially concerned. And it's really a matter of I, I want to do this. I've always wanted to do this. I need to do this or they're coming out of caregiving and this tension of what do I need to hold on to for my own mental and spiritual health? And what at this stage of my life do I need to let go of? And that's a lot of family dynamics. It's sometimes it's estrangements. It's sometimes a career. It's sometimes um, a relationship. It's sometimes a relationship. And these are, look, the great, right now, according to the statistics and the people we've interviewed on Seekers of Meaning, the number one age group for this, for divorce, it's called gray divorce in the literature, are baby boomers. Part of this holding on and letting go. So why do my generation start to really contemplate this and say, okay, I don't know how much more time I have left. I got to let go of all this other crap. And I need to hold on to that, which really gives me joy, joy. And because the joy can bring meaning. Uh, And I'm not talking about happiness, which is an American mythology. You know, you have to be happy.
0: What's the difference between joy and happiness?
1: I think happiness is this creation. And I think joy is um, those moments of existence which affirm your own spiritual being, the presence in the universe, and it brings you meaning. When I'm with my grandchildren, okay? The other day, my daughter called me and said, we have to go someplace and can you take the kids here? And those couple of hours of just doing mundane things, driving carpool, having dinner, brought me intense joy. I'm driving home and I say, you know, this is a, me- we made another memory. Because this goes to the legacy question. Because in truth, as we do every Isker, and, and every time we say Kaddish, That legacy, that stuff of me that I want them to hold on to after I die becomes extremely important as we get older.
0: When you talk a little bit about your generation, and so much has been written and and mentioned about baby boomers, and baby boomers are those who were born after World War II up until 1964, 63, 64, I think is the cutoff. These are all obviously arbitrary demarcations. But when you think about what that generation lived through, the civil rights movement, moving into the end of what uh, some would call modernity, into the digital age, and all of the elements of life that have sort of visited us through those years, what have you learned about your generation? What are the lessons that those of us coming up in future generations, like us Gen X people, and millennials, what can we learn from the experience and the wisdom of the baby boomer generation?
1: It's, it's i actually been thinking about this a lot, especially in the last year, which was the 50th anniversary of my word nation. And the um, the changes in the rabbinate and congregational life from when I walked off the bima at Plum Street Synagogue in 1972 to now, and it's a totally different Judaism. Totally different Judaism. The feminist revolution, Sally was in my class. The spiritual revolution, the revolution in our relationship to Israel, uh, the LGBTQ revolution. All of this took place in the time space of you know, our rabbinate. In looking backwards as well as looking forwards, because you've got to keep looking forward as you if you're Jewish. I think some of the stuff of, of imparting is that a lot of this stuff that we thought was so, so really, really, you know, important. It isn't. And in looking back, really what remains the most important thing to take care of is your own health, which as we get older is extremely important, especially in this day and age. And Judaism's approach to health and wellness needs to be taught starting in religious school because our people don't know about it. But your health, your relationships, my own personal Theology is called The Theology of Relationships. It's based upon Genesis 2.18 in the fact that we, we're not supposed to be alone. And that we crave relationships, we crave society. That's why people created congregations, or why people created community. And to do something and find something that gives you gives your own life a sense of joy, purpose and meaning. Regardless of what the world teaches you. And this is really difficult, Danny. This is really difficult because we know a lot of people who live their life as if it was defined by other people. As you were alluding to before, these are your list of expectations. It's so hard to live an authentic self and not having a life that's defined by others, whether it's your parents or society or your family But it's a real struggle and I think that's the one thing and that's a lifelong that's a lifelong struggle to live your own authentic life, not a life that is filtered through other people's expectations, because then eventually if you do that, I think there's a jumeling, an untranslatable word in your in your soul. It says, but what if and the land of what if. Like the land of woulda, shoulda, coulda is not a land that you want to live in, but it's a real, it's that tension. It's that tension. It's that taking a risk of uh, Genesis 12, of going to a future that you may not know.
0: First of all, to boil things down to those core principles is so instructive, right? This idea of personal health, right? Physical health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health. Nurturing healthy, affirmative relationships, figuring out and delving into purpose and joy and meaning and discovering authenticity. You know, that's a mission statement for any human being. I think that's so magnificently expressed. And I think about how hard it it is to discover that that's really what it's all about and how the claptrap of life sometimes gets in the way. And, you know, I'm remembering back like in the 80s and 90s, there used to be this obnoxious bumper sticker that I saw that said, the person who dies with the most toys wins.
1: Wins, right.
0: Right. And then, of course, we know that in Jewish tradition, a burial shroud, tachrichim, has no pockets. Right. Because you can't take it with you. Right. But at the same time, right, it's not so much about what you take with you. It's about legacy and what you leave behind. Correct. So tell me a little bit about how people can be deliberate in forming their legacy and in figuring out what they're leaving behind and what they're building that other generations that will come after them will build on top of the foundation they've laid. So what is a legacy and how do I deliberately work to create one, whether it's in, you know, in, in the micro for my immediate family, or sort of writ large, as I think about the purpose and meaning of my life and existence.
1: I don't want to deal with the financial legacy, okay? Because, A, I'm not one of those guys. I'd rather deal not with the financial legacy, because not everybody can write a check for, you know, $500,000 to endow, you know, a rabbinic chair or a a, a medical bill, whatever, whatever. But more importantly, it's it's those moments of meaning, those memories. That we, that we leave behind that's part of us, as I tell colleagues, uh, younger students, student rabbi uh, students, you'll do a lot of funerals and all my years of doing funerals since 1972. I only had one funeral in California when I was a rookie rabbi where it was a, turned into a business meeting. But all the others, Dan, you know, and you, you've experienced this too. People will get up and they'll say, I remember the trip. I did with dad or mom or grandmom or grandpa. I remember the smell of the house when we walked in for Passover. I remember the smile. I remember the hug. I remember this joke. I remember this trip. I remember that these are memories. These are how people live on. These are how people live on. It's also, again, I'll go back to text. You, you could, you could if you wanted to take the first three prayers of the Amidah, the avod imahot from generation to generation. That's part of that Ecclesiastes one of being part of something greater than ourselves, and we build on the past. The Atagibur, even with the Mikhail Etim, the resurrection thing. But really, if you use that as metaphor, the legacy is part of just resilience. Everybody gets goes through life with challenges. How do you deal with those challenges? I remember when dad had to do this or he lost his job or mom had Mom got sick and we had to do this and we did this or grandma. But the legacy out of resilience and the kedushat tayum, all of that making, again, Deuteronomy 30, 19, the choices we made affirmed life. That in the end, the legacy was an affirmation of life and the affirmation of us being alive and celebrating this gift of life. You could take just out of the prayer book, a little curriculum on exactly what you're talking about. So that's a short answer to a obviously much larger high holiday sermon.
0: (laughs) Well, no, I think that the idea that you spoke about with that moment with your grandchildren where presence matters. Uh, And this idea that we can be deliberate in fashioning memories and experiences, that we can be the conveners and creators of sacred moments for the people that matter to us. And not just sort of wait to do those things, but to be deliberate in doing those things uh, so that we fashion those memories. Because after we're gone, that's what we leave behind are the memories As you say, it could be those sense memories, the smell of the brisket or uh, the laughter around the Seder table or just that time when I heard my grandfather screaming and yelling at the sideline when I was playing a game or bringing me flowers when I performed in a play or in a dance recital or played a musical concert, those moments where it's the presence that Matters. I think we can all be a little more deliberate in fashioning those kinds of sacred moments.
1: Yes. It's, and it often it's the little things in life that eventually make those moments of meaning even more powerful. And a lot of times it is presence. We all, all every clergy person knows that, that sometimes just being with somebody without even having to say a word, just a hug, a pres- being there makes all the difference to somebody.
0: And at the same time, isn't part of a legacy also hard-earned wisdom or moral principles or sacred values and tenets that you want to convey to a future generation? How can we sort of share our experience, our wisdom, our belief systems, our values and principles with our kids or grandkids without being sanctimonious or without being oppressive or even offensive, allowing for the autonomy of our loved ones of future generations to kind of figure things out in their own way, but at the same time expressing, hey, this is what I've learned. This is what I believe. This is what I think contributes to goodness and meaning. How do you do that as a parent and a grandparent in a way that that works well from your experience.
1: The first thing that comes into my mind is uh, again to go back to what you were talking about: presence, just engaging the conversation, giving people permission to talk about it, and what makes what brings them joy. What 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 are they afraid of? What where are you at this stage in your life? And I think this should begin. This should start in every religious school, from preschool on up. While it's lovely to train kids to become bar bat mitzvah and look good on the bema. To grow up right now is such a challenge and to invite conversation, personal conversation about the life of the world and, and what, what you're dealing with. And, and I'm, I'm very concerned about kids coming up now because I don't think they have enough places to really talk about the things that are bothering them or they're, they're confronting with or, or, or that they have to deal with. And the tradition has lots to say about that. In a way to answer that question, you could take that prayer in the morning prayer, Eli Devarim She'in Lehem Shior. These are the 10, 12 things that you've got to do as a Jew. And have a conversation, let's say with your confirmation class, and say, oh, Have you have you had an experience with this? How do you do this? How would you do this? Because those high school kids have experienced a lot of that stuff. Just to open talk and say, Yeah, yeah you know, look, Judaism has something to say about this. Well, you know, um, my friend is dealing with an eating disorder. Yeah, well, we have. Actual texts to talk about that, and 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 the sacredness of food, and what that means to your body. Or high school kids have experienced issues of, of family dynamics, divorce, separation, death, as well as extreme joy, of relationships. You know, you can use uh, again. I go back to. Uh, I, I I think the texts are are an unbelievable little easy way of entering conversations because they allow the text to speak as the Torah blessing does to you where you are in your life. And I I personally, in, in my teaching, have found that that works. When I do Torah study, and I do Torah study for a couple of congregations and love it, th- this idea of using the text as the entry point. And so, as you know, as you teach, that Torah blessing, La with Torah, let the text, so that text is gonna to speak to me like we, like we do the Torah cycle every year. If I'm 16, that text, is going to speak to me one way. If I'm 78, that text is going to speak to me very, very, very differently.
0: And I think that's the genius of the text, which is that it reflects those eternal questions that we confront at different stages of our life, whether we're 16 or 78 or somewhere in between. And I think that that idea that you talk about, this idea that confronting mortality is okay, and that it's good. I think part of the gift of the high holidays is it teaches us that Yeah, it's okay to talk about death. It's okay to realize that life is short and fragile because that then necessitates a conversation of, all right, what are you gonna do with it? I remember when I was, I think 20, 21, I remember I was home on break from school and my dad was in his office at the house. And he says, hey, do you have a little bit of time? And I said, yeah. And he hands me an envelope. And I said, what's this? He said, this is the just in case letter. Yeah. I said, well, "What does that mean?" And he says, "Well, this is just in case something happens to mom and me and you need to know where everything is." And we spent an hour and we went through his office and he says, "All right, this is where my uh, accountant is and this is my broker and this is where all the the financial information is, but more than that, this is where our 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 cemetery plots are and these are the things you need to know in a technical way." And I remember, obviously there was some good that you know someone knew those things. And ultimately, when my dad passed away, I was very grateful to have had that orientation and introduction. But on a spiritual sense, it was a statement when I was in my 20s, hey, dad's not going to live forever. And it's okay. We need to learn how to take care of those things. And I think that the spiritual process of confronting mortality is, I think, one that helps you to just sort of focus on those things that are of deep meaning. Let's talk a little bit, if we can, about grandparenting. And, you know, one of the things that happens as you go through life is you develop experience. One of the great fortune cookies I ever saw said good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And there's so often because we have lived experiences, we get older, we then look at our kids or our grandkids and we say, Oh, if only they would do this, or if only they would do that, they would be so much happier. They can't see what I see. And at the other hand, you don't want to alienate and you don't want to tell your kids how to parent their kids right. uh, because you don't want to disrupt those relationships. But grandparenting can, I think, be almost as important as parenting in certain areas circumstances. As you say, Rich, I get to spend a lot of time at funerals and I'm always struck when grandchildren talk about the importance of the relationships they formed with their grandparents and vice versa. So in your learning and work, what are a few of the key things that a grandparent should know in how to be a really good grandparent? When to step in, when to step back, when to add advice, when to withhold. What have you learned about grandparenting?
1: From personal experience and just teaching about it. It's a great question. It's a great subject. It's um, actually a subject that has become one of the more requested workshops in Jewish sacred aging in the last six months. A lot of it uh, academically was lear- uh, you can learn through uh, the Jewish Grandparents Network and their survey. that They took a survey they published right before the pandemic. Broke, of Jewish grandparents, and they broke it down into five categories, the nurturing, the supportive, the sort of like absentee. One of the absolutely interesting statistics, and this is our already a survey that's probably three, four years old, is that 53% of the Jewish grandparents that responded to the survey were grandparenting grandchildren in an interfaith marriage. What was one of the surprises to me, Dan, is that almost no congregation has picked up on this and have conversations about this because I will bet you my Phillies tickets this week worth something. You have grandparents at in your congregation, as in most congregations, that are dealing with this and sometimes can create extreme challenges. The whole blending or non-blending. That's one issue. Number two, it's another tension called borders and I call borders and boundaries. Because you learn sometimes easily, sometimes not so easily, how far you can go, but giving advice. When you blend families, even if it's not even in a second or third marriage, you have to learn there's a different, there are different boundaries and borders that you can go to. For example, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm in a second marriage. My wife's son, they have a different you know, way of parenting, etc., as my own children, and we can go t- to a certain place there. But if you go f- past that border, chaos ensues. Families are different, in laws are different, the grandchildren are different. Number three, something that's also a challenge this day is is um, distance. If you're lucky enough to have your have grandchildren close to you, that's one thing because you a lot of times get involved, and in one of the caregiving statistics that are that AARP and Family Caregiving Alliance will tell you is that grandchildren are heavily involved in many cases with the care of their own grandparents if they live close. But suppose you have grandchildren who live, let's say you have a family in Boca, but the grandchildren live in, in Jersey and they may only see them three or four or five times a year or across the coast. Or you probably have family in Israel where you may only see them twice a year, maybe if you're lucky. That's a whole different way of grandparenting. And as wonderful as Zoom is, it you can't have that hug of a grandchild on Zoom. So the distance thing also factors into it, borders, boundaries, uh, the interface stuff. But grandparents, especially now, may be one of the last true transmitters of Jewish values and customs because of the change of the demographics of our community, the change of all the stuff that you I'm I'm sure preach about and teach about, the change in affiliation, the change of the retreat from a lot of times institutional Judaism. Baby boomers may carry with us uh, the ability to really transmit in a way that's different than my own children who are in their 40s, how they transmit Jewish tradition and values. This is why these conversations are extremely important because people are living it and there is no one size fits all. I'm sure if you were able to take the grandparent population of Bethel and have them have a conversation about some of the spiritual, familial, family dynamics issues that they're confronting, you would have grist for a conversation or a subgroup or chavara that would last months.
0: For certain. And I think that There are so many things that tug at a grandparent when you see your children make decisions you wouldn't have made. Sometimes being open to a relationship with a grandchild so that you can be an additional supportive adult voice, that's not a parent. I hear so many stories where if a grandparent is open and curious enough without judgment for their grandchildren, that grandchildren will open up to their grandparents sometimes in ways they wouldn't to their parents. Oh, it's the
1: common enemy.
0: Because it's a little safer. Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to ask you, Richard, there is of course that famous adage that getting older is not for sissies. Correct. And as you see people getting older and they, Start to confront the vicissitudes of aging, which can be the deterioration of our physical capacities, of our mental acuity, having to confront illness, which can bring physical pain and suffering. How do I find spiritual answers to the challenges that come from physical aging?
1: Sometimes people don't. I mean, here's a hardcore reality. Sometimes people don't. Some of the literature now is talking about the third and fourth stages of life. That third stage of life, where you have active adults, people in their 60s, 70s, 80s who are on cruises, they're out playing golf, they're doing this, they're going back to, they're taking courses at FAU, they're involved with this, they're running, they're running. And I've never been, I've never been busier, rabbi. And the fourth stage of life, where the world begins to shrink, illness a lot of times takes over and that universe changes. And I think that's an accurate description, given the challenges of uh, and benefits of longevity. And that's why there's a, there's just something else again in the Times the other day about uh, this confrontation between lifespan and health span. That we talk there's a lot of people talking about extending our lifespan, but really we should be talking about extending our health span, about staying healthy longer, longer, uh, as more important than this the life the quality of life. I'm working on now, in fact, a couple of workshops that I'm, I'm doing one tomorrow night on the, what we're calling the theology of loss. And I think this is something that um, I'm playing with. I, I would really, I want to explore it more and more and do some more studying about it. Pauline Boss, who's the expert on anticipatory grief, really is the one who started me, heard her this, she has a book out on um, anticipatory loss in the light of COVID, It's a brilliant book, high holiday book, The Myth of Closure ambiguous loss in a time of pandemic and change. Really good book. But I'm playing around with this to try and get to the root of the, of, uh, of your of your question. We start dealing with loss, Dan, when we're really young. There are all kinds of these necessary losses. Judith Vor's classic book from the 80s called Necessary Losses talks about this in, in, a, a lot. We usually focus on end of life issues and illness issues, but loss is part of just dealing. When you first put the kid on the school bus, in a way, it's a loss. When you see your child drive away in their car for the first time by themselves, when you drop the kid off for the first time at college and you drive home alone, that's a lo- what do you do with that? How do you how do you take those losses? We have people, maybe you know you know. Who don't see as well anymore who don't hear as well anymore uh who may not be as mobile who have these are losses well how do you begin to take those necessary normal losses and encapsulate them, place them in some sense of sacredness that's a real challenge And if you're asking me to give you the answer i can't give you the answer i think people respond because of how they're raised i think it's partly genetic i think it's partly the messages that have come to them from their own family of origin some people are more prone to saying, okay, this is life, this is a car that has the life has dealt with me. I have two choices. I can curl up and say, you know, my life is over, or I can say, shoot, man, I have to figure out how I'm going to take this cruise in light of going on dialysis or my chemotherapy. And we know people like this. The, the interesting thing is why some people will make that choice as opposed to my life is over. I'm just going to sit here and wait. To die. That's fascinating to me. But this theology of loss, which may be the wrong way to title it, but I'm from Philly. We have to keep things simple.
0: I think the idea that we need to figure out how we grieve our own selves along the way sometimes yeah, is one of the major spiritual challenges. It's part of it. You know, I think about some of the people that I speak to that you know, they go through that grief process as they age because they have to grieve, I can't run and go and do the way I used to. I can't think the way I used to. I can't be as independent as I used to be. Correct. And those little letting goes along the way, I think, require all of those steps. You know, there's disbelief and denial and then there's sadness and there's often anger, but then you can get to a place of resolution and acceptance. And I think that that in many ways is is the spiritual work that that we all do along the way. Richard, my last question for you is, as you know, the title of our podcast is Essential Questions. What is the essential question you're asking yourself these days?
1: The essential question that I am asking myself these days, I will go back to Genesis 3. I'm at the stage in my life I'm 78 years old and I'm trying to figure out what difference I've made if any, how I can leave something behind of meaning to my children and grandchildren and to the community and that third and the answer to that third question of why? Why was I born? Why must I die cuz I don't want to? And why am I here? Cuz I realize that at my age to use my favorite imagery of baseball At 78, I may be in the uh, bottom of the seventh inning. So it changes how I think about things. So that's the straight-ahead, brutal, honest answer to your question.
0: encourage everybody to visit JewishSacredAging.com, Rabbi Address' website. You can find his podcast, Seekers of Meaning, which has remarkable conversations and all kinds of resources around ways in which we can find the spiritual resources in whatever stage of life we find ourselves as we move through life's journey. Richard, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brentzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboca.org slash questions You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast.